Okay, so let's stick to the political component of all of this. Can you just help me define some of the terms for people that don't understand? So there, there's Islam, the religion. Then there's, yeah. there's Islamism, there's jihadism. There's a couple other terms in there. Can you lay out sort of the important, the important ones and, and why they're important and the distinctions between each one? You know, I don't use Islamism. I use the term political Islam. And the reason is, is I define political Islam very precisely. One of the things you have to do in science is precisely define what you're talking about. In mathematics, is, that is really half the job. So what I want to do is to discuss the political aspect of Islam, which affects me. Now then, that means that jihadism is part of political Islam. And by the way, we need to step just to the side here and point out that jihad is not just jihad of the sword. It's also jihad of the mouth, jihad of writing, and jihad of money. So jihadism can take more forms and manifestations than you might think. The Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, more seizes upon the jihad of the pen, the mouth, and the money, whereas Al-Qaeda and Islamic State seize more upon the jihad of the sword. It's just we need to understand that there are more forms of jihad than you might suspect. Well, so, so when people talk about radical jihad or violent jihad, that, that's really, we're just talking about, we're talking about blowing things up, beheading people, the, all, the killing and all that stuff. But really, you're, you're linking that to the rest of this, and that's, that's where the dangerous combination is. If it were only jihad of the sword, we actually wouldn't have a problem. I don't mean to minimize the death of 3,000 people, but we kill more people than that with hospital care, lack of hospital care, and drunk driving on Saturday night. Again, I do not want to minimize the suffering of the death of people that come under violent jihad. Sure. It's just that the actual numbers that are killed are not enough to change America. But changing the textbooks, that changes America. So the jihad of mouth and speech and money is far more important than jihad of the sword. Right, so that there is what you're talking about with the textbooks, that's the 25-year plan that the Muslim mm -hmm. Brotherhood had. That's jihad. And, and that's jihad, not in the traditional sense that we think of it. And then there's, of course, there is also the violent uh, component to it. Oh, very much so. But for instance, against me, I've never had violence practiced against me, but I've had whole smear campaigns launched by Islam. So therefore, look, jihad does not mean holy war. Harb means war. Jihad means struggle. <clears throat> and so therefore, it is an effort. Writing a letter to the editor defending Sharia can be an act of jihad. So jihad is, jihad is actually, it means it's a civilizational war. Look, Islam is so shrewd, they use food, Let's take the hijab. Well, that is a form of jihad in the sense of you now are shaping the uniforms requirement at, say, the police department. Well, it just moved it a little more into Sharia compliance. Mm -hmm. So the jihad is very subtle. Civilizational war. I argue that Muhammad was the greatest warrior who ever lived in humanity. Who dies today for Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar? No one. Someone died today, though, Dave, because of jihad. Yeah. So, th therefore, it's a very, it's a very powerful concept. So, uh, the hijab comparison, I think, is really interesting because I see this all the time, where where my friends on the left, who are supposed to be for women's rights, inequality, and minority rights, and all of these things, they are in every other case, but for some reason, when it comes to the hijab or the burqa, which is far worse, as Bill Maher calls it, a, a beekeeper outfit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, for some reason, they, they're hands off on that. That's the one that they say, well, we can't really 
tell these people what to do, and yet you're supposed to be for women. Now, I understand that there are women that, that are probably watching this that are wearing a hijab, and it is their choice, or at least they believe it's their choice. Um, but is this really a failing of the left? That, that's very much how I see it. Well, you know, it is very interesting. And Bill Maher is a courageous man. Now, I say that based on a very few YouTube videos. Let me confess, I'm not a, I don't watch TV. I'll watch You're a wise man. Well, when I saw the second plane hit the second tower, I stood up and said, Islam is here, it is jihad. And in that moment, I turned off the television and I saw that all of my life study of religion was now going to come into play, that I would do nothing but explain to my fellow citizens what Islam really means. So that's, uh, and I've lost my train of thought there. Well, I, did that. well, I think that, well, related to Bill Maher, so there's, there's an interesting piece of that because there aren't many people that are honestly discussing this, right? We have Sam Harris and there's some ex-Muslims and there's, there's you and there's Gad and a few other people. Um, and then because of that, because of the lack of discussion around it, we keep handing the conversation to people that come in with easy answers, a la Donald Trump, ban all Muslims. So that, that's really why I wanted to have you on to discuss this stuff, because you've put yourself on the line related to this. And, and as you said, you haven't been attacked physically, but it doesn't come without cost to talk about this. Well, thing. I just returned from a talk in uh, North Carolina. I gave it Sunday. There were protesters outside. The president of a local college said that I should be banned from speaking. There were protests from many people that I should not be heard. So, and by the way, I would like to say that doesn't affect me at all. But knowing there are hostile people in the audience does affect me. It's just that I suck it up and go on. Yeah. Um, but, so what were they protesting? They were protesting saying that you were using hate speech, I'm guessing, or something along those yes. lines. Yes. As a matter of fact, you might be... <laughs> You may want to turn the set off right now. This whole exercise that you and I have been sharing is an exercise in hate speech, Islamophobia, uh, racism. That's the oddest one. What has Islam got to do with race? And I finally figured it out. Racist is just the worst word they can use in open conversation on TV. They, if you were on the street, they'd use another word. Right. And all they're trying to do is insult you. Right, and that's and that's the chilling effect because nobody wants to be called a race a, a racist, right? And and once they I use, don't. I don't either, and I'm not a racist. And you know, as as Douglas Murray, who you may be familiar with, the the British author, uh, I've had him on the show, and he basically has said these people are so ill-intentioned with their insults that we can't pay any mind to them anymore. And I think that's that's pretty much what you just said. The only one I paid any mind to, I never defend, if you call me a racist, I say, sure. Call me Islamophobe, right. The only one that I defended myself against was not the charge of being unstable by the college president, but the fact that I should not be allowed to speak. And that's when I, I actually, I challenged him to a debate. I said, bring out your best scholars and we will debate the following thesis. There is no good for the Kafir in political Islam. See, I've handed you a real easy topic, sir. All you have to do is show one good thing. So piece of cake, let's do it. And? But I want a free and open discussion, and that means that I'm not going to call you a racist, a hater, an Islamophobe. Uh, the, I try not to interrupt people when they talk. I try not to raise my voice, and I try not to ever insult, because I don't want those things for myself. And yet I find that the left, this is what they do. I would love to debate a leftist on the subject of political Islam. I don't have any problem with that at all. I do have a problem being called a racist, hater, Islamophobe. Bigot. Yeah, you know. Also, but I don't try to deny it. I've learned it's like a tar baby. If someone calls you a racist, Islamophobe, hater, bigot, it's like, don't even go there. Because how do you deny it? You're already, you're fighting on their terms. 
Yeah. So what I try to do is to move it to facts. I mean, I love that, and that's literally everything that I do my show about is to is to let's talk about the facts here. Let's not get lost in all the feelings, and let's not sling all these uh, these words at each other that that kill the conversation. Interestingly, people have asked me. They've said, well, why don't you have some of these apologists, you know, some of these well-known Western apologists, people who have probably said plenty of un uh, unpleasant things about you, why don't I have them on my show? And I, one of my responses is, first off, if, if some of them want to come on, they're welcome, because just as you said, I, I will debate if they want to debate, or I'll interview them if they want to interview. But what my main issue with it is that many of the bigger players in this space have proven themselves so dishonest time and again that it ultimately becomes a waste of mental energy for people like us, right? If you were to debate someone that you felt was so uh, misintentioned, what's the point at the end of the day? Well, we could at least try. I mean, I'm willing to give you three strikes. Let's, let's give it a try. Yeah. But I think we do have to learn how to discuss these issues. And Dave, it's not just these issues. There's issues, I, I wanna step off of just a side path here because sure. it does affect us. At Vanderbilt University, which is my undergraduate school here in Nashville, uh, Carol Swain made a remark, which she said was politically incorrect. It was trauma for the students. It was front page news in the largest newspaper in Tennessee. The president of Vanderbilt said, we'd fire her, but we can't because she's tenured. Then here's the critical thing. They established a psychological hotline for those students who were traumatized about hearing an idea that they were offended by. My question is, how do I get on this short list of people who cannot be offended? <laughs> well, listen, as a uh, as a white man, that as a cisgendered white man, and I can probably <laughs> think of a couple other buzzwords, uh, you're you're in a lot of trouble. You're not going to be on any of those lists. I've noticed this. <laughs> yeah, you're you're not going to. So I you're on. Okay, so for the nominal Muslim, for the average person who doesn't necessarily believe in the book literally, but enjoys some of the traditions, some of the food, some of the family aspects of this, sort of like most Jews in America are basically secular, but enjoy some of the holidays and traditions and things of that nature. What's the outreach plan for these people? Because these are the people we're supposed to be trying to get, right? Well, I always like to bring up the subject of Muhammad and to discuss the life of Muhammad. It's very interesting to ask questions of a Muslim to see what they know about Islam. The most astounding thing is usually you find they don't know anything to speak of at all. When I was in Munich, Germany, a Muslim was standing there who identified himself as Muslim and he had a beer in his hand. I said, is that beer halal? <laughs> then I asked him, I said, are you familiar with the Sunnah of Muhammad? And he was sort of quizzical. I said, you know, the Hadith, the Sirah, have you read those? Uh, no. I said, have you read the Quran? All of it. He said, well, no but I have an uncle who's a mullah. I said, we don't need the mullah, we need Muhammad. You need Muhammad. So I love to ask Muslims questions about what they've actually read. And do you think that's any different than the average uh, Jewish person or the average Christian? I find most people, and, and again, that goes to why when I'm talking about religion on the show, it's like so many people really want to move past it. However, because of the political element and the violent element that's going on right now, it makes it almost impossible to do. Well, I want to talk about it. I'll talk about it with you. I'll talk about it with a Catholic priest. I'll talk, look, I'm kind of like a, uh, I'm, I used to be young, believe it or not. And when I was young, if you wanted to talk about sex, I was all ears. <laughs> <laughs> but now that as an old man, I'm all about Islam. So I'll talk about it with anybody. 
And so that's what I try to do. And 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 by the way, I do talk about it with Muslims. I've debated with Muslims, just had, you know, conversations. So I think that Islam, political Islam, is an incredibly fascinating topic. And so I've devoted my life to talking about it because the answer to Islam is Islam. I tell people to cut a diamond, you need a diamond. And to cut Islam, you need Muhammad. Hmm. And by the way, notice what I said there. Forget about the Quran. It's too difficult to read, and it was deliberately made difficult to read. But anybody can understand the life of Muhammad. So start with Muhammad, and once you know Muhammad, actually, if you'll soldier through his life, you'll discover that you can read the Quran and understand it, just knowing who he was. Yeah. So going with the, with the political part of that, uh, when these discussions happen, you know, a lot of people will say, well, look what America has done in the name of imperialism or capitalism or whatever. Now, granted, America has done a lot of bad things. And even as we speak right this second, there are drones flying over, you know, Pakistan and Afghanistan. And if they kill some innocent people while killing terrorists, well, I can understand why people wouldn't like the West. And, you know, there was the Ottoman Empire that ran the whole Middle East. And then the British Empire carved it up and the UN carved it up in all kinds of crazy ways. So a lot of them will say, well, if all of that happened and you happen to be a certain religion, your religion would become sort of intertwined with the political part of that. Do you, uh, do you think that's a fair critique? No, that's not a fair critique at all. It wants to take Islam only as an, an event that happened since colonialism. We've got to remember, the United States was, has been in existence a very short period of time. And what I like to point out is the origins of Islam are what give it its roots, and the origins of Islam are based on expansion by sword. Remember, in the history of Muhammad's life, the religion of Islam did not bring him success, but the politics of Islam through jihad brought him complete success. This happened in the year 632 when he died. This was a little bit before Europe was the power it is now, and it was a little bit before. So we need to have an explanation about Islam that will include all of Islam, not just what happened since the colonialism of the Europeans in the Middle East. That is, we need answers which explain everything. And yeah. the answers about the doctrine explain everything, what happened in the Middle East today and what happened 1,400 years ago. So what do you make of the fact that so many of the attacks that we see in the Middle East, I mean, just in the last couple of days, you know, bombs blowing up all over Iraq. Iraq, which is now, at this very moment, seems like it's crumbling worse than it's crumbled in the last... 10 years. I mean, these are jihadists that are blowing up mosques. So ah, the that, that, that's not the what? There's a there's a form of jihad which I call jihad jihad of purification. Let me give you an example. When Muhammad died, the first caliph was Abu Bakr, which actually is the name of the current caliph of Islamic State. Yeah. That was not an accident. And so when Muhammad died, a whole lot of Muslims says, you know, the Islam thing's been kind of cool, but we're out of here. Abu Bakr says, not so fast. You can't leave. So therefore, the first war fought by Islam was the Rita Wars, which are the wars of apostasy. So this is what happens in the very beginning. So because of that, basically, you're saying that, that on any of these given attacks, they can just look at the, there's ways that they can look at the other and say that they're not quite the authentic. Right they're not authentic, so therefore this is jihad of purification. I've done some statistical study based on the raw data found in the religionofpeace.com, and what I discovered was is that for every Kafir who dies in jihad, there's roughly two Muslims. This is over the period of the last, uh, I think, since 9-11. So therefore, the person most apt to kill a Muslim is, surprise, 
not a drone, but another Muslim. But they're killing them for authentic, for reasons of authenticity. They're hypocrites or they're apostates. They're not good enough Muslims. In particular, Islamic State is Sunni, and they'll kill the Shia in a heartbeat. Yeah, so let's, uh, that's exactly where I was going to go, actually. Can you explain a little bit about the difference between Sunni and Shia? Because we have strange alliances here in the United States with different regimes, depending on whether they're uh, Sunni or Shia, like our, our friends, I suppose, the Saudis. It's a, they're very confusing as to what's going on with them. Uh, but can you explain what the difference between uh, Sunni yes. and Shia is? First, let me say the difference makes no difference. Let's start with that. The question is really moot. Here's why. Remember, I'm not about religion and I'm about the politics that affects me. Right. You see, the Shia say that the caliph should only be a descendant of Muhammad, and in particular, Ali. Whereas the Sunnis say that any man who follows the Sunnah, hence Sunni, is capable of being caliph. So this is the distinction. But it really goes back to bad blood between different political elements in Muhammad's day. But why do I say it doesn't make any difference to me? Because the Shia and the Sunni have a doctrine of jihad against the Kafir. They have a doctrine of deception. So in the critical elements, that of which affects me, I'm like, who cares? Right. So far, from my point, from my viewpoint, I can't tell the difference. What do you make of the Christian community right now, the political side of, of Christianity that is watching Christians, all sorts of sects of Christianity, uh, being kicked out of the Middle East, communities that have existed there for thousands of years, being kicked out right now by ISIS and all kinds of other groups, uh, and holy sites being destroyed left and right, and they're not saying anything. What does that tell you about the political state of Christianity? Bankrupt, morally bankrupt. I stand in churches and condemn them for saying you've lost the ability for righteous anger. Your, your own scriptures teach you that you're to take care of the persecuted, and yet you will do nothing. Why will you do nothing? Because you don't want to be called a bigot and a hater. You have reduced all of Christianity down to two syllables. Be nice. But let me tell you something. Jesus was not a nice man. He was a kind man. But he was capable of debate. He was capable of argumentation. He was capable of offending the powerful. So you need to stop this niceness and become a follower of who you say you are. What a wonderful distinction that is, because people think, uh, you know, uh, what would Jesus do? And it's sort of be nice. But you're really making a great point there. He d he fought the power. He, he, yes. did, he did the right thing. If, if you believe yes. in, in historical Jesus, he did the right thing. Um, but that's but that's different than just being nice. Oh, listen, there's and by the way, I have nothing against being nice, but a steady diet of nice is like having the buffet have nothing but ice cream pie, candy cake, and chocolate on it. It's like, <laughs> it's like nice is the dessert. You need it, it's nice, but you need much more than that. No, I, I re and by the way, when I condemn Christians, I always follow up with this parenthetical expression. I'm only condemning 95% of you. Which, how do they take that? Well, with a small smile. Because I've already <laughs> okay. condemned them and they're stood in their own church and I've said, the Christians have become a people who are kind, compassionate, loving, caring, sensitive, but without courage. I said, you have only compassion, you have no courage. And this is not the way to be. In the founding of this nation, Christianity was a civilizational force. But now that I tell them, your influence no longer goes beyond your parking lot. Yeah, I mean, that's really a, a fascinating thing. And I guess the proof in that is that if you were to look at the nations that are, are majority Christian, 
pretty much in all of them, people of all religions are allowed to live peacefully without having yes. religion imposed on them. Not to say we don't have hardcore uh, fundamentalist Christians here who do get involved in politics and a strong Christian right, which fortunately in America is getting uh, less powerful. Um, but basically, you can live in a Christian nation as an other and be okay. But that is there any example of that in an Islamic country where you can live as another and truly be equal? Well, uh, let's just take a let's just run through. Turkey used to be Christian. North Africa used to be Christian. Egypt used to be Christian. Afghanistan used to be Buddhist. Pakistan used to be Hindu. Persia was even half Christian. Where is that Christianity today? Malaysia used to be Hindu. Where is that Hinduism today? Where's the Hinduism found in Pakistan? So I'm giving you here different examples. Now, what they say is, is well, you know, whether we can live in harmony, but how does it work out in history? And what it works out in history is, is I call it the law of Islamic saturation. Once Islam enters a society and the Sharia starts taking hold, it will, over enough period of time, become completely saturated with Islam. Yeah, was it you that had laid out certain percentages of these things? Where if they hit certain, like 4% no, of the No, someone else did that. It sounds like my work, and it, I'd love to take credit for it, but I cannot. Yeah, I was, somebody did it. I, I'm not sure who. Well, somebody will tell us in the comments section. Sort of laying out percentages and saying, you know, per, certain population points hit certain changes that then change things societally and in terms of laws and things like that. It's very much in your line of thinking, I think. Yes, and it is true. The more Muslims are there, the more Islamic the society becomes, and the more demands they make upon that society. Yeah. So, so, so let's be clear here to, to wrap this thing up, because in, in the 50-some-odd minutes that we've been talking, I haven't sensed one even slight uh, twang of bigotry or certainly not racism or xenophobia or Islamophobia, because as we said, it's a, it's a made-up word, um, from you. And yet I know what people will say about you, and I know what people will say about me, just for, just for having... Station now. Yeah, exactly. So ju but just for having this conversation. So I guess my last question to you is, what is the best, for the average person that's watching this, that hears you, and that wants to do good, and may have Muslim neighbors that they're friends with, and may be married to a Muslim person, or whatever it is, what, what's the best way that you think the average person out there that cares about this can help spread this message that you're spreading, which really is of peace and equality, but it's dealing with some, some tough stuff? Well, I'm an educator. And what I say is you have to educate yourself. Now, you can use my books or other books, but you must learn the life of Muhammad, not the fake biographies that are put out like by Karen Armstrong, but something based on the Sarah. And really, that's my message. No Muhammad. And you need to understand what the Sharia is. The Sharia is far more subtle than you think. And we need to resist any further advance of Sharia. And we do this with knowledge of who Muhammad is, who he was, and therefore, we don't want the progression that went with Muhammad, which was from peaceful religion to violent politics. Well, there you go. I hope that even my friends on the left, who I disagree on this, will be able to watch this and say, okay, that was an honest conversation, and let's try to have some, some difficult discussions. Uh, but I'd love to have you back in a couple months, and, and we'll keep oh, sure. talking about this, because sure. there, there's so much, I mean, we barely got into anything. Oh, here, we, we, haven't, we haven't discussed women's issues. We, have, I mean, we haven't even started. Well, we, we did a, do a we could do a whole show on Muhammad and the Jews. Yeah, I mean, we did an hour. We basically did about 
what, we did 30 seconds on women. I don't think we said the word gay once. We really did 30 seconds on the Jews. All right, so you will, you will definitely come back. Oh, yes, yes. As you can tell, I enjoy these kind of conversations. I'm, after all, this is what my life is. Welcome to my life. Uh, <laughs> well, I'd like to thank Dr. Bill Warner. And for more on the work he does, you guys can check out politicalislam.com. Thanks again, Dr. Warner.